Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. We all know the stakes remain high for businesses. In the past few months, we have pivoted and adapted many times in order to remain relevant and continue innovating as we get ready to reopen for business as we drive and thrive. Today, we have a very special episode of All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett from our high stakes leadership forum of the C-Suite Network. My guest is none other than Christy Hefner, chairman of Hatch Beauty Brands. Her famous last name may be known to many, but what you don't know is she pioneered many changes from being one of the first to hire female executives in a male-dominated industry to going digital when no one else was doing it. In fact, she holds the record of being the longest standing publicly traded company CEO who was a woman. I talked to her today about that and so much more and why we need to have more women in positions of leadership and how to be more resilient, especially with so much changing and changing so fast. Welcome, Christy Hefner to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Great to be here, Jeffrey. Thank you. You know, my first question, because I was going through the numbers, you know, we're talking about Black Lives Matter, but we also need to keep our eye on the ball when it comes to to women and all people of color. And in doing so, I went and looked at some of the numbers. There are 37 females of Fortune 500 companies, the most ever. That's the most, which is, I mean, when I see that, I go, that's the most? And and it and but it's only making up seven percent of Fortune 500 companies. What do you think that needs to happen for women to achieve parity in the C-suite? Well, I agree that while we've certainly come a long way in terms of having those 37, if you really think about it, the fact that we're still mired in something around 20 percent of women on boards of companies and in the C-suite, when women are more than half the population, more than half the MBAs is distressing and depressing, frankly. And to your point about Black Lives Matter, I think if if we can't get the gender diversity part right, it's going to make it even harder to get the rest of the kinds of representations that we need because each other group of people is an even smaller portion of the population. But I think some of the challenges are similar for both groups. And one of them is the tendency that people have to hire or to invite onto boards people they know. And that tends to be people like them. And it really therefore requires an affirmative dedication to putting in place the tools, whether that's demanding diverse slates from search firms or working with partnering organizations that are particularly skilled at identifying either women or people of color or both when you're doing searches. And it also requires, I think, facing up to the fact that all of us, and I do mean all of us, are guilty of certain kinds of unconscious bias. My favorite example to demonstrate the power of that was many years ago when there were virtually no women in the orchestras of the most uh, renowned symphonies. And when the conductors were 
kind of queried about this, the answer was always, well, we would be very happy to have women in our orchestra, but there are not women who perform at the level that we need in the Chicago Symphony or the Boston Symphony or whatever. And then someone had the brilliant idea of having people audition behind a screen so that the judges could not see the gender or race of the person. And don't you know, in a relatively short period of time, as any of us know who've ever been to a symphony, you see definite gender diversity. Well, you know, uh, one thing, and I thank you for saying this, what I like about you, you and I have had some real difficult conversations sometime, but one of the things I think that was really cool is that you just said, we're all subject to bias. And 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 I, I think that's important for all of us to think of it like that. Now, I recently had somebody who was saying, well, I because we have we've always said we've got to get people of color and women on the stage, and 51% of our stage at least is that. Okay. Now I'm I'm trying to even do better than that. And I'm and and not just people of color black. Okay. I'm doing all of this. And so it's and then, but I had somebody who I was talking to at another organization, they said, well, Jeff, it's just tough to find qualified people. And and I said, stop it right there. It just means you don't know enough qualified people, right? So how do you, what do you think you have to do, I have to do, others have to do, just besides the, like on the boards of getting um, the recruiters, what else do we need to do? Well, I was actually just um, talking about this issue with the CEO of one of the companies that I work with who has a senior opening spot and would very much like a diverse candidate. And he had already hired a search firm with whom they'd worked before. And I said, in that particular case, I would ask that search firm for what their plan is to provide a robust, diverse slate to you. And if you don't feel that that is an adequate plan, then you need to tell them that they have to partner with a firm that specializes in identifying diverse candidates. Many years ago, I worked with a group of four or five women uh, to form an actual search firm right after Sarbanes-Oxley. Our theory was that with the requirement of a majority of independent directors, coexisting with boards, tending to want their seated CEOs sitting on few, if more than one, other board. There was a supply-demand shift that might create the opportunity for more women and people of color. And we actually worked as a search firm in that field. But over and over again, when you talk to NomGov uh, committee chairs, they would say, well, we did ask for a diverse slate. And then we got a slate of and I'm going to just be really direct here. Eight white men, and at the time, let's say Meg Whitman, who was CEO of eBay, and Ken Cheneau, who was CEO of American Express. And then when the board chair would say, well, we'd very much like to interview Meg Whitman and Ken Cheneau, the search firm would come back and say, oh, apparently they're overboarded. And then the company would say, well, we tried. And the truth is there are vast numbers of but, people. By the way, didn't they know that ahead of time? Didn't they know that ahead of time? My belief is they did. And search firms traditionally, yeah. and I have friends in search, but I'll just be blunt here. They're lazy about board searches because board searches are not as lucrative as C-suite searches. And so they don't work to create a robust database. So I think you often have to go beyond the traditional who do I know or even who's in the database of the biggest search firms. 
Yeah, I think that's important. Let, let me ask those shift a little bit because l- listen, you you got so many monikers or labels that I could kind of tie to you. And I don't mean them labeling in terms of a negative, but you've got this, you got the female thing, right? You you've got the family business thing, right? You got the publicly traded company thing, and I could keep going on, right? Which one of those monikers do you think best fits you or that you like or dislike? Well, I probably most like the variety of my roles, and that's reflected in the diversity of the kinds of businesses I've worked with over the last decade since I left as CEO of Playboy, because I like learning new things. I like being challenged in different situations, whether it's a private company or a family-owned company or a PE-backed company, whatever it's geography or it's industry sector, whatever it's size, whether it's young or mature. So I kind of like that multifaceted aspect of my life as much as any single element of it. So when you were in the family business, how much did the family play out in the business? And I, and I know you lost your dad a, a year or two ago. It's time's flying by quick. And I know your mother's still with you because uh, you talked about taking her to the doctor today, which I think is cool that you're doing that. So what, in working in the family business, what was that like? Well, Playboy Enterprises had gone public before I joined it. So that's already its own dynamic, as you know very well, Jeffrey, and creates a whole set of uh, expectations and needs and rules that if you're simply a private family-owned business, you don't have. And I was the person that actually led the charge to recapitalize the company, becoming the first New York Stock Exchange traded company that was allowed to issue a second class of stock with disparate voting rights in order to, over time, build a really blue-chip list of institutional investors, which in turn gave us a means of bringing in capital for growth, having a currency to use for acquisitions and for compensation. And I always thought that my role was kind of dual in that I had this traditional IR role as a CEO of a publicly traded company in working with my institutional shareholders, but I had a controlling shareholder in my father. And I had an obligation to not just inform him, but make sure that he was comfortable with the investment decisions we were making or the strategic decisions we were making. I will say, I think our relationship was greatly helped by the fact that unlike, let's say, Catherine Graham and Donald Graham in the Washington Post company, Mm. Hef had never really wanted to be CEO. He really wanted to be editor publisher of a great magazine that then beyond anyone, including his dreams, became this empire and therefore he became a CEO. And so when he first hired an outside president and then I succeeded that person and then I became CEO, he was actually very happy to be more of the chief creative officer and delegate or allow me to be the more classic CEO. So how, I'm just curious, how many times in a month did he pick up the phone and call you and say, hey, 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 what are you doing? Um, a lot at the beginning when I was president and he was still CEO and we were turning the company around. I mean, I was, mm-hmm. I was back and forth to L.A. and I remember him saying to me at one point, I feel like I threw this fantastic party that I was at for all these years and now you're having to clean up the next morning. I said, yeah, I kind of feel that way yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. But honestly, by the time I became CEO, um, I, we would meet once a month. I would go out to LA and sit down with him. But 
he was actually pretty hands off about that kind of thing. So I, when I hear you talk about how you recapitalize New York Stock Exchange, do that. How did that come to you? Was that Did that come from you? Did you go to a consultant? I mean, when I hear somebody talk like that, I'm thinking, wow, that's one, that's smart. Two, how, how would you have come up with that idea? And, yeah. and, you know, like, where does that where does that come from? It's a, it's a great question. So the company was public when I joined, as I said, but it had um, a majority shareholder and therefore very little liquidity to attract institutional investors. And as a consequence, it had all of the costs and responsibilities of a public company, but none of the benefits in terms of access to the markets because my father didn't want to sell more stock and lose control of the culture and the brand and the things that make family businesses actually quite successful. So the prevailing thinking in the boardroom when I became president was that the company should go private. And that would have meant once we had sort of stabilized it financially, taking all of our resources, debt capacity, cash on hand, to reacquire the public shares. And my feeling was we were just in the early days of the growth of cable TV and home video. And we were already thinking about a multimedia strategy that was different than let's launch another magazine. And it just felt to me instinctively that being a single branded media company in a dynamically changing industry with limited financial resources, because we would have used them all simply to buy back the stock, was not a prescription for success. And that fundamentally, I believe all companies are in one of two modes. Either they are growing or they are dying. And you can die over a long period of time, but it is one or the other. So we um, retained Shearson Lehman at the time as a banker and Kirkland Ellis as a law firm. And kind of my question to them was, I don't like this option of going private, but I also understand that the present status quo of being public is not working. What are the other alternatives? And they started to develop this dual class stock plan that involved having this currency of non-voting stock that would be uh, allow, it, allow us to access the markets while retaining the family uh, control. And when they finished it, actually, in in response to your question, I had become friendly with Warren Buffett and I sent him the plan and I said, what do you think? And he made some very pointed critiques of it in terms of the potential of it being perceived as an entrenchment of my father's control, because at the time there were in some other companies, I won't name them, that had two classes of stock, real abuses by the controlling shareholder. And I said to Warren, well, but that there's no risk of that. I mean, Heffel would never sell stock or do anything that wasn't in the company's interest. And he quite rightly pointed out it was about perception. And so we put in place other protections like if Heff ever wanted to sell even 10% of his voting stock, we had to sell an equal amount at the same price of the non-voting and uh, guarantee of the same dividend policies and other things. And then we went to the New York Stock Exchange. And I said as a personal goal that I would get a majority of the non-family voting shares to vote in favor of the plan, which we did. So it's interesting when I hear you say Hef. Mm -hmm. Did did you call him Hef publicly or did you call him dad? It's interesting because even in my own family business, I watch my children, you know, call me sometimes Jeffrey or the chairman. And then sometimes they say my dad. So it's interesting. Well, let me put it this way, Jeffrey. Whenever someone came to me and said, do you know what your dad did? 
it was kind of like when one spouse says to the other, do you know yeah. what your son did? I didn't yeah. think that the answer to that question was going to be something wonderful. <laughs> so in my case, I always referred to him as half in any business setting, whether it was just an internal meeting or externally. But if we were in a private setting playing backgammon or watching a movie or I was writing a card for his birthday, I would call him dad. That's awesome. That's a great way of doing it too. Um, listen, one of the cool, cool things I think that you did, uh, you did lots of course, but, but one was the transformation from an old magazine company into the digital side of the business. By the way, I think if you'd had the capitalization the other way as a private company, you wouldn't have been able to do it. I think that's in hindsight without question. So what was that? What was that transition? I mean, did you just look at it and say, we got to do this or we're going to die? Yeah, it's a really good question because you and I've talked about this over the years. I really think that what business are we in question is so fundamental to getting the right strategy. And it sounds so simple and simplistic, but I mean, at the most clear example I can think of, if you answer it correctly, you're Netflix. And if you answer it wrong, you're Blockbuster. So <laughs> we challenged ourselves once we had created a financial stability for the company in the 80s to say, what, what business should we be in? And we, we did hire, to your question about process, we did hire a, a boutique a consulting firm called the Marketing Corporation of America. And I married them with our own C-suite and some outside people that were leaders in industries that were relevant to us. And we sort of challenged ourselves to answer that question. And what we determined in concert with the those conversations was that really the opportunity was not to remain as a magazine company and launch or buy other magazines, but to think of ourselves as a brand driven multimedia and lifestyle company and to think electronically and to think internationally. And I think it helped that we were early into cable TV in the eighties and that had become a successful business. And that then made it possible in the early nineties for me to inspire the company to start thinking about what at the time was called kind of new media. So what is this world of digital multimedia that are CD-ROMs and CDI and all of that? And to experiment with different ways of creating and delivering content across platforms. And then because of my own intellectual curiosity, I started to attend conferences. And through that, I met a man named Jim Clark, who was one of the founders of Netscape Mosaic. And at the time, some magazines were licensing their brand name and content to, say, an AOL or a Prodigy or a CompuServe. But we felt if this was our business strategy, then we wanted to maintain creative and commercial control over what the world of Playboy would be online. And I was discussing that with Jim Clark at a conference that we both attended. And he said to me, well, I can build a a platform where the consumer will type in playboy.com and they'll just come to your site. And I know as we're talking today, you know, in 2020, that sounds, you know, as obvious Crazy. as my saying, yeah. I have this small phone next to me that I can call my mother without a landline. Right. But this was in 1992 and there were only 10,000 websites and only 10% of the United States had ever been on a website. So it's a pretty radical idea. And I thought, I'm sure he can do it because he's Jim Clark, but I was also afraid that 
the cost of it was way beyond our capabilities as a mid-sized company. And he said, no, it's actually not that expensive. And so we launched with the vision of being creatively risk takers, but fiscally cautious. So and sometimes when you when you say playboy, some people have a negative and they have a positive response. And I look at your career and the breadth of what you do, and I don't see playboy. I just see a very innovative leader, woman, capable, talented, those kind of things. Does that bother you sometimes that you get that moniker that that some people don't even want to talk to you because uh, you know? Well, I'm, I, I just I almost want to put it in the same reference of oh, you're black. I don't want to talk to you. Oh, you're, you're Asian. I don't want to talk to you. Or, hey, you're young. I don't want to even talk to you. Does that bother you at all? Not really. I mean, I think I, I understood implicitly because I grew up reading the magazine. My mother always had the magazine in our home along with the New Yorker and Time and the Atlantic that Playboy was a set of ideas and ideals and it took positions on controversial issues, whether that was um, abortion or gay rights or gun control or legalization of marijuana, and that people had very strong opinions about it. And that, as my father once said, the magazine and particularly the photographs were something of a Rorschach test that would reveal how someone felt about sexuality, felt about nudity, felt about these issues. And so I think I knew going in that I was going to be a part of that, and I learned pretty quickly that when I was out doing an interview or talking to a group of students, that my objective couldn't be to persuade everybody to see the world that I, the way I saw it, but just to speak to the vast majority of people who don't start with a bias that they can't overcome and do start with an open mind and an open heart. And if I could talk to those people about why I respected Playboy and what it was as an employer, as a foundation, as an editorial uh, philosopher, as a corporate citizen, then that was all that I could do. And, And rather like being the daughter of the founder when asked by groups like YPO, second generation, gee, should I join the family business? I always said, there's no one right answer, but I will tell you this. If it will bother you that there is someone somewhere who will think the only reason you're in that job is because your father, which is usually the case, but your parent, you know, founded the company. If if that will bother you, then don't join because there always will be someone who will judge you that way. But the vast majority of people will judge you based on what you did with the opportunity. And that's the way I looked at it. Well, I think what's interesting is, is regardless of what your, your own personal opinion is about that particular issue, and to me, it's a First Amendment right issue, that is, is, and I know it's not the same as talking about race when I bring that up in that conversation, no. but my point is about being open to biases and being open for discussion. And I would much rather have the discussion with you and find out I still disagree with you than not have the discussion. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the key thing that I want to bring out in that. So amen to that, sister. And then let me ask you this last question, and we want to open it up for questions. It, I, I keep saying right now, Christy, that days are weeks, weeks are months, months are years, that just like you were faced with the chasm of, I've got to change this business, I've got to move it digital, I have to move it from here to here, I've got to move it from an old boys network into a lifestyle brand, I've got to do this, I think people are looking at the very same thing. I think we're standing on the brink and either you got a choice to do this or this big wrecking ball called COVID-19 is going to smash into your building and crush you out. Do you feel the same thing? And what should people be doing right now? 
I absolutely do, Jeffrey. I, I mean, I felt that because of the advances in technology and the impact of globalization, you know, starting in the 80s and 90s, that there was this acceleration at the rate of change that companies had to respond to and that the old idea of a 10-year plan was completely no longer relevant and one had to develop a uh, core agility in order to make adjustments. But if that was true, you know, in the nineties, you know, we're kind of at warp speed now. And as has been commented, the pandemic is almost a time machine to the future and it's forcing acceleration of, you know, everything from that, which is digital, whether that's AI or whether that's um, telehealth and, and e-learning and it's also, I think, forcing a kind of different way of thinking about culture as one that uh, can actually keep pace with the unpredictable and unsettled times that we are living in. So I completely agree with you. My favorite quote so far, you're either growing or you're dying. It's either one or the other. And I thought that was good. And by the way, John Colby, I think is John Colby. Our goal isn't to reach agreement. It's simply to find understanding. I thought that was a good one That's as well. Excellent. Thanks, John, for sharing that with us. C-Suite Radio. Hey, Rolanda, it's time to go to questions. Open it up to all of our folks. Make sure that we're unmuted and we're ready to roll. But Rolanda, can you grab some questions from the audience? Absolutely. You just mentioned John Colby and John jumped right in. John, we love engagement like that. Um, he jumped right in with the first question. So John Colby asked Christy, what is the number one skill that leaders within organizations should look to improve? Hmm. Hmm. Look to improve. Um, I got one for you, Christy. Okay, go ahead. You go first. Listening. I think listening, yeah. I think it's, it, you know, so many times we think we have to have the answer and the answers are out there in front of us. And I can tell you so many times I stood in, in, in Kodak and I said, you know, this place is screwed up. Someone should do something. And then I realized it was me, but it was in the listening of the others that brought the ideas. And I think we'd have to spend more time doing that. How about for you? I, I will, I will actually high five you on that. I think particularly bright people too often think that communication skills is about articulating your ideas. And that is for sure important. But I would argue that at least half of effective communication is active listening. And that that means not thinking about what you want to say next, but actually hearing the other person. And I would marry that with another related skill. And that is the skill to manage conversations in a way in which you actually are getting the best thinking of everyone in that room. So one of the things that was important to me was to recognize, for example, that not everyone is equally aggressive in, you know, expressing themselves. And I would make sure whether it was a boardroom or, you know, an executive committee meeting that everyone in the room spoke when we were discussing an idea or a challenge and that people felt empowered to see the positives and the negatives of what we were talking about. Because one of the risks of leadership, especially at the top, is people try and ascertain what they think you want and then support that. Yeah. And I like this uh, give and take too. You know, one of the things I always like about our friendship is we're transparent, right? Mm -hmm. And and great leaders are transparent. So when we hear something that doesn't jive, we say, well, wait, let's talk about that. Or we find out that other leaders or other people in the company aren't telling the same story and we have to bring that out. And I think that's important. Mm -hmm. Ro? 
Nick asks, did you ever experience any buyout attempts? <laughs> yes, although because we had the dual class stock structure, there was never a risk of an unfriendly tender, which frankly, in the early days when I was um, leading the turnaround was very helpful because it meant we could focus on cash and didn't have to worry about the stock price. But there were um, uh, a few conversations where people came to actually talk about uh, that. And there were actually two times, without going into the details, where I thought that there were really interesting merger opportunities that would have created slightly different structures. But when I left, the company was still operating as a um, publicly traded company. Subsequently, my father partnered with a private equity firm and took the company private. Yeah. And, and it's always interesting because you always get those opportunities. I'm curious about the merger opportunity, though. Would that have put you in control of a much bigger operation? I don't feel I should give too many details, but I'll say <laughs> it would have split the company and taken the licensing oh, business sure. and married it with a bigger licensing business, which would have been publicly traded. Wow. And kept yeah. the media businesses and taken them private. That would have been cool. That 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 is was that your idea? Um, me and others. Yes. Yeah. But that, that would have been a cool, that, and especially in today's environment, imagine yeah. what you could have made the brand to be. I mean, you, I, I, again, I'll give you some kudos for those who don't know, you really invented the licensing business on that side, at least with Playboy. I mean, you yeah. licensed everything, keychains, t-shirts, you know, uh, every, everything. And it was, uh, by the way, I modeled a, a portion of Kodak's business around that did this exact same well, thing. You, you mentioned the percentage of women customers. That was the business, which was a billion dollars at retail when I left and was the company's biggest profit center, where 80% of the products around the world, whether it was fashion or jewelry or uh, accessories or home furnishings, were women's products bought by women. Well, thank you very much. Now I feel very inadequate, Ro, because I only did a hundred million. She's talking about a billion. So <laughs> I know. Can you imagine? Can you yeah. imagine? Oh my gosh. And I gotta tell you, as a journalist, Playboy had some of the best interviews, some of the best articles. I mean, just really good stuff. Um, a lot of people, I want you to know, Chrissy, are saying how much they're enjoying you in the chat. They really enjoyed hearing about your family business, a little behind the scenes. People always love that kind of stuff. And so this question kind of falls into that. It's from Mike and Mike asked, Christy, please share how you give back for impact for your personal wellness, how you help your community and in business for the greater good. One way I have tried to do it is to um, help foster networks, which obviously if you're involved with the C-suite network, you know the value of having like people and diverse people with whom you can interact and have exchanges. And so I was a founding member of uh, Women Corporate Directors in Chicago. I was a founding member of the Committee of 200, which is women, uh, both entrepreneurs and corporate. I was a founding member of the Chicago Network. I was the first woman in the Chicago chapter of YPO. And so I, I have a, a, a commitment to that. Um, a second is through mentorship. I've been an advisor to Springboard Enterprises, which is a nonprofit that's an accelerator for women tech entrepreneurs, and I really like that. But I've also long been interested in public policy. When I was in college, I actually thought I would wind up going to uh, law school, and my dream at that time was to wind up on the Supreme Court or in the Senate, so I wasn't thinking about a business career. And obviously, my life took a different 
turn, but I've remained interested in, in public policy and politics, and I serve on the board of a leading progressive public policy think tank called the Center for American Progress Action and work for candidates I care about and for what I'll call good government, you know, ending gerrymandering and voting rights and things like that. Um, and then I really value and make a conscious commitment to nurturing friendships. Some going back to when I was in school, some, you know, business friendships. But I, I really deeply believe that our lives are greatly enhanced by that. And in some odd way, this pandemic has maybe made many of us feel that we maybe didn't even appreciate as much as we should our friends and our family. And, and it has not just forced us, but fostered in us a desire to stay connected. And I hope that that will be sustained even when we are all back out able to be in the real world the way we were before the pandemic. Absolutely. Connection for sure. And just not connecting with our families and friends deeper, but with each other in humanity deeper. And I think that's something that's sweeping the nation and, and finding itself in our boardrooms as well. Here is a question from Nurse Deb, and I think that kind of touches on this. Um, Nurse Deb says, what is the best way that today's CEOs can foster, support, and grow more diverse CEOs for tomorrow? And that's a tough question, I think, that's, that's on the table right now. And how did you do that? How do you give something that can be a little uncomfortable for CEOs to, to have to adjust to? But it's necessary today. Could you explain why it's necessary and give some advice on how to approach this new day? Well, on the why it's necessary, I've thought for a very long time that diversity in the boardroom, in the C-suite, is a matter of good governance. It's not something that's in the category of, gee, that would be nice to have. And in fact, I think there's been so much research done about the quality of decision-making, whether it's around risk-taking issues and investment decisions or about new product development that clearly demonstrates the greater success when a diverse group of people are working through an issue. Because frankly, groupthink is the opposite of innovative thinking, and groupthink is best reflected by too much homogeneity. So the need, as Jeffrey and I have been talking about, for innovative, agile thinking, which has never been greater, is to me inextricably linked with diversity and diversity of thought. So it's an imperative. As to how, I think there's a lot to be said for both the peer-to-peer, i.e., if, if I were a CEO and I were working on that, I would be reaching out to other CEOs where either in looking at their boardroom or their um, C-suite, they had achieved better results than I had, and, t- and having an honest conversation about how. And also mentoring the people under you. So whatever women or people of color are in your organization, what are you doing to help them get on a board, help raise their level of visibility? Because that's the pipeline that you can send out into the world in the same time you're trying to fill your own pipeline. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Greg asked, would hiring a vice president, a black vice president as a female, would that be effective? Helps. Well, I don't think it's about the profile, gender, or race of one job. I think it's about does your does your executive team look like 
fill in the blank, the country, your markets, your consumers, your investors, the world, um, and the same with your boardroom. And, you know, there are regularly published by various organizations, lists of companies that still have no, there are Fortune 500 companies that have no person of color in their boardroom. I'm not sure we have any Fortune 500s that have no women. We might still have one or two, but it's about the whole and the commitment to over time get to that. And frankly, if you thought you could wait, you're gonna find that there's pressure from the outside in. Goldman has already announced they will not take a company public anymore. They will not underwrite an IPO without a woman on the board. Uh, BlackRock and other CalPERS large investors are saying that a big consideration for them in investment decisions will be the diversity in the boardroom. So this is something where we have to play catch up. Well, it's, uh, let's point it out, Christy. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll say this, only 17%, maybe as much as 20 now, but I know last I looked, it was 17% of all publicly traded companies have women on the board. That's freaking ridiculous. 51% of the population is women. You only have 17%. That tells you that most publicly traded companies c- couldn't go public given those kinds of, uh, that kind of help. And that Jeffrey, just- Jeffrey, I think it's not quite, it's, it, it is egregious, but it's not quite, I think, how you've uh, framed it. It's that of the directors, only 17% are women, That's, not oh, of the companies. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, of the, of the, yeah, of the directors yeah. on the company, that, that, yeah. without question. And so you, you made a comment, and I'm going to say this because the C-suite network is very much in, in trying to help people provide that, you know, as you said, sequoia tree earlier, uh, Rolanda, where we're trying to give people some air cover and saying, here's some things you should look at. Now, we recently took some stands on Black Lives Matter in terms of that issue and what you need to do, publish your numbers, go look for companies that you can invest in, um, you know, a, a whole host of- look other supply chain. A supply chain, everything. But, you know, the key thing, and one of the things that we, we did at Kodak, and I did this at Kodak, 70% of the people, 75% of the people that reported to me were women or people of color. Now, why? Well, we need to reflect the population we're serving. You know, and if you're in marketing, quite frankly, and if my key customer is the chief memory officer and she was a woman or Hispanic well, or a person of color, I, you know, it just always used to drive me crazy when someone, when a white executive would come to me and say, I want to be the, I want to be the head of marketing or head of the company in, in, in China. And I'm going, look, but you're not Chinese. You know, don't you think we should look like the people we're serving? And I just think that's an important thing for us to do in a way to kind of frame that question or at least the answer to that row. Yeah. yeah, no, I agree. I mean, the worst example of that I can think of in my experience, although this goes back a number of decades, was I was talking to the, a male CEO of a financial institution who, who genuinely thought he was well-intentioned about in promoting women. And there was a, a key position uh, that was open he was recruiting for. And I asked him how many women candidates he had. And he said, oh, they didn't have any women candidates for it. And I said, why not? And he said, well, you know, we tried a woman in that position and it didn't work. And I just thought, would you ever say we tried a guy in that position and it didn't work? But no, we're all, we're all a captive of what we've experienced and what we know. And we have to force ourselves to get out of our comfort zone. Well, exactly. That's the big thing. We have to we have to ask the questions. We have to 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 give people permission to be vulnerable, to make mistakes, because that just didn't even 
didn't even go into someone's head. Now, and look, I've made decisions. We've all made decisions. I've done things that all of a sudden my wife will say, did you think of this? <laughs> no. Uh, and then you feel like that's, that's that tall and you feel very stupid. So I think that's what we see here going on today too. Well, and one of the things I would add back to the question about, you know, leadership qualities that led you and you and I to have this uh, back and forth about listening as a, as a critical skill. You can't overestimate the importance of creating a culture where people will be candid with leadership. And as Peter Drucker famously said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I think what is true of a lot of companies is that the people within the company and not just the female employees and the employees of color, others too, know the company isn't getting it right. Know the company is talking the talk but not walking the walk. But do not feel empowered to say something, to speak up. And so thinking about what are the ways as a leader, you create a culture where people feel empowered to want to engage in making it a better, more diverse culture. So it's not just you, the CEO, but you have, it takes a village and you have all those people on your team engaged in and empowered by that as a key objective. And someone just wrote the tone, Lisa Levy, who was one of our thought council members, wrote the tone starts at the top. And I want to thank you, Christy, for joining us, for being a part of this. Ro, what do you got to say? Oh, my gosh. Christy, you were fantastic. And you have done so much for women. And I think you're setting such a great example as we are all learning and growing and diversifying. Thank you so very much. What a joy to meet you. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.